lots of people have opinions. Very few people want to stick their neck out with 50% of the data or 70% of the data or even 10% of the data and say, no, we're going to actually make a decision based on a foundation of truth and of goodness and of, you know, all the, all that kind of stuff and of, of integrity. We need more of those. And so, you know, the willingness to kind of make those decisions, take responsibility and accountability for the, the, for the results and improve from there. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on April 26th, is a conversation with Justin Wheeler, the CEO of Berkadia. This is the second of our two-part series on real estate services firms. The last was with Brett White talking about his time at the helm of two of the global giants, Cushman and Wakefield and CBRE. In today's conversation with Justin talking about Berkadia, which is an investment sales and mortgage finance-oriented shop particularly focused on the multifamily business. The conversations with Justin and Brett represent two ends of the spectrum of these businesses, the giant in all sectors and all disciplines all the time, versus the focused investment-oriented shop in each competing directly in their areas of overlap. I take so much from these conversations. Headlines for me from this discussion with Justin, first, Listen to him as someone who came to leadership mid-career from outside the industry, tagged by Warren Buffett, yes, that Warren Buffett, to lead this company. Second, and he said it over and over in the conversation, leading a business with behaviors and perspective built for the long game. I will count this long game view now both as a Sleppinism and a Buffettism. I like the sound of that. And since I've done some search work for his company, They walk the talk in terms of culture and people geared towards that long view, relationships, and collaboration. Justin said it on the podcast, and we experienced it in their assessments and selections of candidates. There's a consistency in the company around these concepts and their behaviors. And finally, for me, just a fascinating contrast between the companies and value proposition that Brett articulated for the giant companies and that Justin articulated for Percadia. Absolutely no judgment here, no right, wrong, no better, worse, just very, very different and very successful business models that both benefit both clients and workforce with their ability to choose very different value propositions. I said it in the intro to the conversation with Brett, and I'll say it now again, introducing this conversation with Justin, are the parallels both at the producer level and at the enterprise level with what we do at ZRG and search and related services. Throughout my search career, since I'm in real estate, I've long compared my work and the value proposition I deliver to that which top brokers at these firms do in their work as advisors. And I asked the question to both Brett and Justin on what makes a strong producer and what sustains the top people in their markets through a long career. Same gig as mine. And then hearing Brett and Justin talk about the growth and feeding of culture and platform at the enterprise level is just what our leaders are doing in building a global enterprise at CRG. CRG has the same mandates in building a global business driven by sales production and thoughtful advisory services, but also in a breadth of offerings, in our case, not just search, think not just brokerage, but also integrated services like interim RPO, culture and business consulting and assessment, which provide holistic versus just transactional services. So many parallels in building strong, sustainable, successful, admirable businesses. If you're enjoying the show, please share this episode with a friend and indeed go into the archive and check out episodes you might have missed and then share those with a friend. If you're not a subscriber or follower, go for it so your podcast app will deliver future episodes. Rate us. Yes, please rate us. And feel free to contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com If you have comments or feedback on the show or would like further information on ZRG and how we can help your organization with our services on the talent and platform building side of the real estate business. Thanks for listening. And I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Justin Wheeler. I'm standing in my office in Salt Lake City, Utah. Whoa. Is that where your main office is or where do you live? I, I lived in. I was in New York for about ten years yeah. as part of my career, including part of Vercadia. And then uh, I moved to Salt Lake. My wife's from here. I'm originally from Idaho. We moved in July of 2021. COVID. We did the same. So we moved to our weekend place in Sonoma. So I live in the country, and oh, wow. you, you may hear my birds. And 
you also might hear my dog. Honestly, another, the other thing that's happened, Matt, is most of the people I used to meet with in New York have now moved to Miami. Exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's just changed. The world's changed. I will tell you, I didn't grow up in the commercial real estate industry, so I'm a little bit of a, a duck without a pond, but that's also part of the story as well. So, Justin Wheeler, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and thanks so much for being on the show. We've been talking about having you on the show for a while, and the timing is great given this really interesting state of the world right now. We've also started grouping episodes together, a model that I've had a lot of fun with because we get to explore subjects from two different angles. A month ago, we did investment management. Last month was housing affordability. And then this month is the real estate services firms. Two weeks ago, when the conversation was with Brett White from CBRE or Cushman and Wakefield, uh, and prior with CBRE talking about the global giant services firms, and today it's a conversation with you talking about a more niche-oriented investment manage- investment services uh, transactional-based business, uh, Bercadia. So I'm thrilled to have you on the show and thrilled to talk about the business and your world, and um, so let's get started. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. And so kind of just given the crazy state of the world and what's going on, but just give your introduction to yourself a little bit, a very high level on what Bercadia is, and then we can jump into all parts of the conversation. Yeah. So Bercadia, you know, primarily, as you said, a a little more niche than some of those others that you spoke about, primarily multifamily, about 85% of our business overall is in the multifamily space. And really we think about it as a three-legged stool. We have investment sales, which is, you know, trying to get exclusive listings on apartment buildings or other commercial real estate. We have some niches that maybe we'll talk about later. And then uh, mortgage banking, where we hope to finance those acquisitions or refinance uh, previous acquisitions. And then servicing, which is really about the mortgages that are then generated. And we do, uh, you know, obviously we service the mortgages we originate, but we also do what we call fee for service, which is servicing for other on other accounts with kind of a white glove service. That's kind of the three major areas that we're in. You know, we have ancillary things that we do in addition to that, but those are the primary ones. You know, it, it's grown rapidly as has the industry. In 2013, we did about $10 billion of total volume. Uh, and in 2021, which is the banner year everyone wants to point to, uh, we did about $68 billion in, in transactions between investment sales and mortgage banking. And our servicing book is the third largest in the industry behind a couple of banks, the largest non-bank servicing portfolio. And we're right at about $400 billion in, in, um, and 21,000 loans serviced. That kind of, you know, that's the bird's eye view of Bercadia. Perfect. And, and the, just to, to get a sense of this, cause you say you're 85% multifamily, the servicing book is half multifamily. What's the range of that? It's a little bit more than that. Uh, you know, we'll get maybe get into the history of Bercadia a little bit, but when we started, it was about 50-50 between multifamily and all the other commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. It's actually trending more towards multifamily. So it's probably two-thirds multifamily and a third non-multifamily. Okay. But it gives you a broad view into this kind of wacky world right now. <laughs> it does. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it obviously gives us, uh, you know, recurring fee income, which in today's world is, uh, is, is worth a lot more than it was maybe a couple of years ago. But the data and the information we get off of the servicing portfolio is extremely valuable. Cool. And then also, this begs the question of 2013 was 10 billion, 2021 was the banner year at 68 billion. What do you think is going to be this year? And then how do you manage a transaction-oriented company with that kind of an accordion of low volume this year? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I would just say, you know, 20, I talked about 2021, uh, 2022 was really the the tale of two years. Uh, for nine months of it through September, we were actually on pace to outdo 2021. And then the dreaded fourth quarter came along, which is typically with seasonality is kind of the big quarter. Right. And it just fell flat. I mean, the world kind of froze up a little bit, obviously, given the rate situation, everything else that was going on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we ended up down about 15% for the year in 2022. This year, we're down, you know, let's say kind of in that same range and kind of the 15% from from 2020, from 2022. So, you know, we're still kind of struggling a little bit, uh, but we've done a lot of recruiting in the past two or three years. And that's, 
you know, same store sales were down a little bit more, but given the the additions that we've made to the team, you know, that's helped make up a little bit of the difference. Yeah. It, down 15, 20%, that seems lower because transaction volume, I know you've grown, so therefore you're that helps, but doesn't necessarily help. How do you keep... I, you don't have to answer any of these questions, but you can. <laughs> but how do you keep producers going at times when it's the feast or famine and that might be the famine year here, or at least the diet year? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a very fair question. And and look, these are folks, as you well know, Matt, these are folks who are highly compensated, highly commissioned. It's kind of eat what you kill in many ways. Um, but we've worked really hard on a couple of different things. One is we have ownership, which we ought to talk about because that's really where the magic starts. You know, Berkshire Hathaway owns 50% of Berkadia. Jeffrey's Financial Group is the other 50% owner. Both of them are large, obviously, public company. We, we're, we're a private company and we get to take the long view, which is really a blessing for us. So I think every single one of our public competitors and several of the private ones have announced layoffs. We haven't done a layoff. Because we really, this is a cyclical industry and it's going to come back. And is that in six months or 12 months? I don't have any idea, but it will come back. And when it comes back, we want to have everyone fully supported. We want to have the right teams in place. And we want to, you know, catch the wind that comes back into the sales with as many sales up as we can. That's one thing. The second thing is we've worked really hard in the last three or four years on our culture and really moving from a individual dog eat dog, sharp elbows kind of lone wolf business model to a collaborative team-based platform advisory model. You know, the history of Bercadia when I got here was this was, in fact, the, the motto was the value of certainty. It was such a transaction focused company on just getting deals, individual deals done. And I believe there's a big evolution in our business towards more advisory. And so we've worked hard. That's not just a, oh, let's just change that and become advisory to our clients. That's a real cultural shift of how do we bring teams to our client, not just one person who's, hey, I'm a banker. Can I finance or, you know, an acquisition or refinance a loan for you? It's, hey, I'm from Bercadia. What, what are the problems you have? What are the issues you're facing? How does your portfolio look like? What geographies are you in? And then bringing the entire platform of solutions to that client. And we're really trying to make that shift. And I think now is the time, even though it's down and transactions are down, our put people are really focused on what we can control. And what we can control is kind of that team-based approach, learning, you know, learning about each other's skills and abilities, making friends, if I can say it, on the platform with each other, you know, working on how those co-pitches go. How do we actually do that? We walk into a, you know, it used to be just me and my piece of paper. How do we walk in with five people who need to each kind of speak to their expertise and and let the client drive the conversation versus versus the person. And so, you know, it, it's not easy. And I'm not going to say that everyone's running around, you know, happy because they're not catching money in buckets anymore. But they are, I think we are kind of laser focused on building a team and a platform that as the cycle turns, as it inevitably will, we're going to really take more market share and become more relevant to our clients and potential clients. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. We had this part of the conversation in the discussion with Brett, and we talked about the balance between producer and platform. And the value of the platform goes up over what you're describing, same in the big services firm, right? So if you can leverage everything, there's a lot to sell, but a lot to do, a lot to consult, a lot to give to the clients. As the value of the platform goes up, then maybe the comp model changes, but comp- and compensation drives behavior. So without too much specifics, how do you, how do you adjust that? And how has, how have you worked through that over, how have you evolved that? Well, I, t- I take a little bit different. It's, it's a, it's a nuance to that approach because when I came, certainly it was, you know, the old comparison was, well, if you work for Goldman Sachs, it's all about Goldman Sachs. If you work for, you know, CS, which is going away, you know, it's all about you whose name's on the card. And so is it the platform or is it the producer that has a client relationship, that sort of thing? I think that's a little bit of a red herring. And I think what the real way to approach it and how we've approached it over the last five or six years is how do we make the platform so valuable mm-hmm. to the producer that the producer can't service their client at any other place better than they can do it at Bercadia? Right. And so it kind of takes away the question of, well, is it the platform or is it the, is it the producer? It doesn't really matter. The producer mm-hmm. just knows that that client can, is not going, they're not going to be able to move to any other platform and get the kind of convenience and the kind of execution that they're going to be able to get. And also, 
we talked a little bit about our servicing book, the kind of information and actionable insights that we can give them that maybe helps them make a little bit better decision than their competition. So let's drill down into how those pieces come together. And I'm a mortgage producer and I'm in a room. I'm bringing my colleagues. What do my colleagues bring to that client? What does that data bring to that client? Let's think through that holistic part of this business. Yeah, hundred hundred percent. This is not a one man race, and 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 everyone knows where the finish line is, and so it's uh, no one's running in different directions. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of where do you emphasize, and what part of are you focused on nutrition, or are you focused on you know the physical ability, whatever the case may be. But yeah, I, I would just say that that. It sounds trite maybe, but collaboration, like Mm -hmm. really getting people to see each other as valuable and seeing that client as not a someone, you know, not someone that I'm trying to get a transaction out of, but someone Mm -hmm. I'm trying to develop a relationship with. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think about this, a great uh, example, which I've used a lot of times internally, Matt, is think about stockbrokers. I mean, in 1985, when I was 13 and opened my first account, because my uncle gave me $2,000, which is more money than I'd ever heard of, uh-huh. it was about a transaction. I would make all the decisions. I would you know, get the paper and look at the ticker symbols, and I would call my broker in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and I would make an order, and he would execute. That's all that he did. Mm-hmm. Flashing out to 2023, there's, there's kind of no such thing as a stockbroker on the retail side. But what there is is a financial advisor. Because they made that change, those stockbrokers made that change to more advisory work. That's really where we're headed towards. And when I talk to my financial advisor, it's not just him. He's got a tax guy and he's got a da-da-da and he has these different kind of components. That's the same thing that we're headed towards is like, you know, our clients want convenience. They want expertise. They want an edge on their competition because money spends everywhere. Everyone's got the, you know, everyone's dollars worth the same. So how do we give that to them? It's it's given it to them by the platform bringing someone bringing the platform to the client, and that uh, that involves a bunch of internal and external relationships. Mm-hmm. And you used a word before, and it's one of my favorite words, and it comes up on the podcast. And you said your ownership lets you take the long view, but also that consultative arrangement with a client instead of chasing this deal. It's how can I help you? What can we do? I just said this to one of my clients this morning. I want to be your advisor. There may not be a gig here. So there could be a mini gig where I'm advising you because you need me. You need me in your court. How do we help you do that? So there's multiple services to get there. And then there's also the kind of producer that's most successful in that environment. And maybe the most successful producers are the same person all they've always been that way, but I don't know that. Any comments to that? Yeah, I'll just give you some examples. So, yeah. you know, in 2014, when we bought Hendricks and Partners, which was our first foray into investment sales, before that, yeah. Berkady had just been mortgage banking and 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 lend and uh, servicing. Yeah, we had out of the top ten producers that we had there, we let five of them go, and it wasn't because of their production. It was because they simply were not interested in nor capable of doing the kind of collaborative, teamwork-oriented approach to clients and to the business that we were, mm-hmm. that was our strategy, our vision and our strategy. And so it, you're absolutely right that some level, it's not the same. You couldn't just plug the top 10 producers uh, across the country and into Berkadia in a way they'd go and it all work. Some of them it just wouldn't work for because that's not the approach they want to take. It's not the approach they're interested in. And so it really does require both a type of broker, and I just say a type of human, and it also requires a platform that can enable that team like, you know, that that to work. It doesn't just, it also wouldn't work to take a bunch of Bercadia brokers or bankers and plug them into anyone else's system because it's kind of the two have to go together. And so we've worked really hard over the last eight or nine years that I've been here, combining the first identifying the right kind of people, then building the right kind of platform that allows those people to succeed. Well, and disclosure, I've done some recruiting work for your team at the leadership level. And at the leadership level, you're saying the truth here, because that was throughout the entire conversation in recruiting, who can work within the company on that behavior model? So this is totally consistent with how, uh, with what your guidance is internally. Yeah, and I didn't grow up in this industry, Matt. So, but I, uh, for the first five years, every person who joined our platform on the production side of the house, I interviewed them, and it wasn't I didn't you know ask them to 
quiz them on how they underwrote a loan or how they thought about this, that, or the other. It wasn't a technical conversation. It was a cultural conversation around what kind of people are, you know, is this the kind of person that's going to come in and be accretive to our strategy of teamwork and collaboration and, and our results? Or is this going to be someone who is going to be kind of maybe either more traditional or old school, if you will, of, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of all about me and and I can do this on my own. I totally understand that. So, Two things at the same time. One is you came from outside the business mid-career to then leave this business. So briefly, what did you do before this? I'll give you a very brief bio, but sure. I, and I'll even start at the beginning. I grew up on a farm in rural Idaho and went to Utah State University. Shout out to the Aggies, uh, the real Aggies. Then I uh, went and worked kind of a normal job and went back to business school and got my MBA. And I went to work for a company called Lucadia National, which is had the ticker symbol of L-U-K, which I thought was always kind of funny. And it was a, a public company, but it was really think about it as like a, I'd almost say kind of private equity, but it was, we we went around and bought companies, fixed them. And then we never tried to sell them, but every once in a while, someone would come up to us and and buy it for way more than we thought it was worth. And that was just kind of our model. It was you know rumored it was called the mini Berkshire Hathaway, had it done a few transactions with Berkshire Hathaway, uh, so on and so forth. And so I, I was there for 14 years with always a day job of either running an individual company or running a portfolio of companies. And then the night job was always, what's our next deal? Like let's, we these were junkyard dogs, uh, transaction guys that I worked for. So I did that for about 14 years at Lucadia, ended up as the chief operating officer. And in 2013, we bought Jeffries, the uh, investment bank. Mm -hmm. And I moved to, I moved to New York uh, from Utah and was there for a couple of years. And in the meantime, we had bought Berkadia in 2009. We thought it was a liquidation because it was the world was on fire. No one was lending. It was a great financial uh, crisis, so on and so forth. But over time, we had recognized this was a real company that had growth potential, et cetera. I was looking for a new CEO. And I guess I kind of pulled the Dick Cheney where I, I said, that, you know, I'll look for a new CEO and looked in the mirror and said, oh, George, I found your vice president and was lucky enough to get my uh, bosses to agree. And so I moved to become the CEO of Berkadia in 2014. Cool. Okay. Let's go backwards. I'm sorry. So that was quick and there was a lot there. You said you had bought Berkadia in 2009. It wasn't then called Berkadia. So Jeffries had bought GMAC Capmark? Lucadia had. Yeah. So in 2009, I was at uh, Lucadia and a friend of mine actually named Randy Jensen had a, uh, he had brought Capmark to Berkshire Hathaway and said to Warren, hey, you ought to buy this company. And Warren said, kind of interesting, but it looks like this would be a lot of work. Call my friends over at Lucadia, see if they want to do the work, and maybe we'll maybe we'll do this together. Let's go back yet again. So let's okay. tell the story for a minute, because I'm I'm old and I watched all this happen. And I'm from okay. Philadelphia and I've been to Amber, oh, wow. a place yeah, yeah. no one wants to go. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. Amber. Okay. But what was GMAX? So kind of tell quickly the GMAX story, because what's also interesting as a real estate historian, GMAC was one of the first roll-ups of mortgage banking companies. Absolutely. And then in the financial crash, it crashed. So just tell yeah. that story quickly so we know what it is this junkyard dog bought. Awesome. Maybe the best way to start is going all the way back to GMAC. So in, uh, you know, everyone, I, I believe everyone should remember or should know the name GMAC. And what's funny about it is most people who are in the commercial real estate space are one or two degrees removed from GMAC because yep. it truly was kind of the 800-pound gorilla at its time. In 1994, GMAC started a commercial real estate mortgage company with mortgage bankers, with servicing, and that was a pretty good little chunk of their company. They built it up over time. And then in 2006, kind of G- GM and GMAC itself, along with a bunch of other things, kind of got broken up and sold to various people. And so in 2006... GMAC Commercial Mortgage Company, uh, a portion of that was bought by KKR, Goldman Sachs, Five Mile Capital, some big Wall Street names that uh, a lot of people have heard of. And the idea was, let's infuse that with a bunch of capital. You know, let's go and do a bunch of proprietary kind of business. And then in 2009, we'll do an IPO. We'll all get rich and go home the way we're, the way we're used to having it happen. And on the way to the theater, 2008 happened. And they renamed and, it Catmark, right? So that was yeah, what they I then called that. it. Yes, they, they renamed it Capmark. And so it was Capmark for, from 2006 to 2009. And then when the Great Financial Recession came, it blew up spectacularly and went into bankruptcy. 
So, you know, GMAC spawned a lot of, as it broke up, a lot of people left GMAC and started their own companies. As I said, a lot of, uh, a lot of these can trace their origins back to GMAC, which mm-hmm. was, which was not only in the multifamily space, but was in kind of everything that had to do with both financing and servicing, uh, including across all asset classes. The piece that went to Capmark was the, was the commercial real estate side of it. And Again, as it blew up in 2009, went into bankruptcy, that was when, you know, the little private equity firm found them, took them to to, to Warren and Warren said, let's let get Lucadia involved in this. And so I led uh, part of the due diligence mm-hmm. on Capmark. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, at the end of 2009, we bought the company in a 50-50 joint venture. So the reason it's called Burkadia is Burke for Berkshire Hathaway and Adia for Lucadia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why we spent no money coming up with that name, Matt. It's a beautiful name. And one can't just say the first name of Warren and pass through that conversation. So think about the ownership entity. Think about him as the most famous investor in the world and the most thoughtful investor. I will tell you, I once met him because he bought a real estate company called NHP and they toured him through the business and I met him uh, and uh, they were, I think they owned it for six years or something that went public. He is as advertised, Matt. And Burkady is in his head. So, and what does his head do for the, just directionally about this? Anything? Does it, is there a meaning to that? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I will say this, he doesn't call me all the time or send a message all the time. We send him obviously reports and things like that. The few communications that I do get from him are about two things, risk and capital allocation. Mm-hmm. And he's true to his word. That's what he's going to be focused on. And he's going to let us run the company. But I'll give you one story that I think is a powerful example of how, how does he impact us? Mm-hmm. So Early in my career as the CEO, as I said, we have a large servicing portfolio, which has a whole bunch of escrows associated with it. And in specific cases, we get to keep the earnings off of the escrows, which you know, for the last six or seven years, haven't been that interesting, but certainly in the last year have become much more interesting. But anyway, this is probably 2015. Uh, we were earning about 17 basis points on, you know, $5 billion worth of escrows. And I thought, man, if, a good, if I'm a good CEO, I'm going to figure out how to get like 40 basis points. Wouldn't that be kind of amazing? <laughs> so I spent, I'm, my background's finance and I spent a bunch of time, you know, trying to figure out how to do it because these, these deposits have to be very liquid, very safe, very, you know, that sort of thing. And so it ends up being kind of, you got to put them in really highly rated banks and savings accounts, which was the reason for the 17 basis points. So I came up with a pretty complex memo, pretty complex information. And I fired that off to uh, Omaha. And uh, there, at the time there was a, someone in between me and Warren, whose name, her name was Tracy Britt Cool. And she had lunch every Saturday with Warren and talked about her portfolio companies, of which Burkadia was one. And so I, I sent a copy to her, obviously, and I asked her to um, to make sure Warren read it. So, you know, Monday comes and uh, don't get anything. And Monday morning, Monday at noon, I still haven't heard. Monday afternoon, I finally get the courage to call Tracy. And I said, hey, Tracy, you know, did you talk to Warren? Did you have lunch with him? Oh, yeah. Did you talk about the memo? Oh, yeah. Well, what did he say? And uh, she said, Justin, Warren said, tell Justin his job is not to figure out how to get incremental yield on escrows. I'm pretty good at that. Tell him his job is to build the best franchise in the industry. Wow. That I think about almost every day, Matt. So how does he have an impact? He has an impact every day. It's that word, the long game that we used earlier in the conversation. So now let's go back to, you buy it in 2009, you think you're going to just break this thing up and make some money. But then in 2014, I think you decide, okay, let's go for it. And they put you, who's not a real estate guy, in charge of this thing. So there you are. So you didn't break it up. What was the vision? What was the plan? And why would you do this? Because this is a strange business to you. Yeah. One other thing I just say that I think is also, you asked the question, Warren had played a big role in me taking this position. At the end of 2013, I was doing this search for a a new... um, for a new uh, CEO. And we got on the phone with Warren. We were looking at a different acquisition, which didn't happen, but we were uh, a bunch of us at Lucadia. We're talking to him and, and he uh, gets on the phone. And the first thing he says is, hello, my friends at Lucadia. How are you? Are you as excited about Burkadia for the next 10 years as I am? That was when the light went off in my very small brain that was like, oh my gosh, this is a daily transaction company. And Warren's thinking about it in terms of decades. Wow. 
that is also kind of the basis for the strategy that I've had and that the management teams put together is it's all dependent on having that long-term view and that shareholder base that allows us to do things today that maybe aren't going to pay off next quarter um, and maybe aren't going to pay off, you know, in the, you know, in six months, but they're going to pay off over time and you just keep accumulating, compounding those little good decisions and you end up with a great business. Yeah. So put us then in 2014, let's talk about culture, which we've talked about. You expanded into investment management, which through the industry are not investment investment sales, which mm-hmm. through the industry became a mandate. Yep. You did a couple few acquisitions about that, but what was the game plan? What was your vision? What was your knowledge of you got to do this and bring that long game view to what is a very transactional business, meaning culture-wise often about, let's just get that next deal. Yeah, I, I would, we've talked a little bit about, but I would say there were kind of three things strategically that I thought were were imperatives. Mm-hmm. And uh, and one of those was really to get investment sales and mortgage banking to work together. Mm-hmm. And you know, at the start of this, this is 2014, it was like, I, I liken it to my old junior high dances where, you know, you go to it, there'd be a bullet punch in the middle of the gym. There'd be all the girls on one side, all the boys on the other, the music's playing, but no one's really getting together. That's how it was in within Burcadia. You know, investment sales were like, hey, these guys are going to screw up my my clients. They just want to, you know, milk me for the clients. And then the mortgage bankers are like, look, these guys aren't good enough. I don't want to, you know, I only have four or five great clients. I don't want to screw up those relationships. And that was kind of the complaint that I got. Now, the compl- biggest complaint from the mortgage bankers is we don't have enough investment sales guys for me to work with. And the investment sales guys kind of have the same complaint, which I find is a wonderful problem to have. Um, but that was really kind of the, a tactical way or a strategic way. We were going to get those to work together. And we believe that the clients actually would end up benefiting from that. The second one really was around culture, around kind of this evolution from a transaction-based model to a relationship and advisory-based model and how to execute upon that, which is there's a lot of cultural aspects under both. All of what I'm talking about, cultural kind of foundation lays that way, a lot of change management, and then just a lot of kind of structural things, everything from you know, compensation to systems to management structure to all that kind of stuff that we that we kind of had to we kind of had to work through. And then the third one was really that service the the kind of innovation. You know, this was one of my first meetings I had in in at Berkadia as a CEO. I went into a room with a bunch of people and we talked about you know technology and and things that we thought technology could do. And I had someone say to me. We, what are you talking about? We're, we use a lot of technology. I said, well, explain yourself. And they said, well, we used to send faxes and now we do PDFs. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, I love this industry because there's such an opportunity for innovation, everything from digitization and automation of processes, but even more so, Matt. And again, this is going back to 2014, the data, the raw data that was just coming out of all the pieces of Bercadia from all the appraisals we are getting to see, all the proformas that we get on the servicing end, obviously we're getting monthly rent rolls. I mean, we're getting so much data that you could kind of drown in it. And how could you, how could we actually centralize that? And how could we process and, and analyze that in a way that what we're generating is not just more noise out into the system, but actually sending out insights to both our salespeople to give to the clients and then directly to the clients in, in ways where that matters. And those were the three kind of strategic things that required a lot of shifting of, of views to, to, to action, action to make turn it back. And let's talk about each of those because it's interesting as you did this, the industry did this, meaning that investment sales and mortgage banking became aligned in most companies who had it. And it was a good problem to have because you didn't have both. You're in trouble. So yep. you guys had to go do some acquisitions to get the, the territories in the platform together, but a natural fit once people are used to it. They're not used yeah. to it before, but then you have to build it out. Not easy to build it out. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and, and we talked about that a little bit. That required a lot of recruiting and convincing people that, you know, the the new way was the best way and was the better way, I guess you should say, and that Berkadia was willing to invest and commit to the you know, the resources and time it takes to make that sort of a shift and a change. I mean, that was that was no small feat to, to kind of refocus the energy towards that. And the other thing was we needed to have, you know, some of the clients validate that. We needed to have some clients who kind of came forward and said, it's actually really good for us as a seller 
mm-hmm. to use Bercadia as the you know investment sales, but also to have them, they've got a mortgage banker writing side saddles. So we know exactly what's going on in the debt markets. We know exactly what the opportunities are for the buyer. And that allows us to think about, you know, bidders and how they're how they're working in a much different way. And it gives us a lot more confidence that the transaction is actually going to happen or information of, you know, why it wouldn't happen. And that's ended up being, I think, a very powerful uh, thing. And as you said, the, the industry is doing it. So it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, proving itself out. Yeah. So let's mash up a couple of different comments about that because it's interesting. So first of all, we know investment sales tends to be a local business and mortgage banking tends to be a national business. You trade you client-based business. So that's one thing. Second thing is this is a world of the strong producers. And the strong producers have a market share that winds up being year after year. It's it's a consistent market share. And I want to be the, if I'm the mortgage banker that has that, I want to work with the salesperson who has that kind of market share. And if they don't, the client's going to pick someone else. So now it might be that your platform bolsters a very high potential investment salesperson who doesn't have the market share. So they're just as good. They don't have the vortex. So how do you how do you over time get that so that someone you have the strong person in both seats in each market? Yeah, and, and that's again, Matt, that's I wish I had some <laughs> really great answer for that or some solution, but it really starts with we take the long view. This is not this change of business model, this change of approach, mm-hmm. this is about not only kind of, you know, uh, teamwork and collabor- collaboration, which are kind of funny words, but it's also like, it's about the personal relationship. I mean, if you're going to be a banker and this was, this is old data, but in 2018, we did an, an analysis of our own group and about 80% of an individual mortgage banker's revenue came from, you know, five or six clients. So, I mean, these are deep, deep, deep personal relationships. These are ones where they're the godfather to the client's kids. They're coaching their coaching the baseball team. They're doing whatever kind of it takes, right? They're reminding of their wife's anniversary, of the wedding anniversary, things like that. And then on the other side, on the investment sales, you have folks who, for every transaction, they don't know who's going to be the buyer. So they're talking to hundreds of people. And it's, and it's geographic expertise-based, not client relationship-based, although it, it morphs a little bit, but you know, you know what I mean, certainly. Yeah. So- you got to give a little bit of time and space and a structure for those relationships to evolve. And you have to incent that through some compensation tweaks and some things that we've done on that side of things to kind of get it going. Mm-hmm. But then it's a very kind of organic, Hey, I, you know, I, Jim, I don't really mesh with, but boy, his, his partner, Bob, man, we really get along. So you start to see some of those things happen of just these natural partnerships and teams kind of form. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you see, as you said, you see some where there are some mortgage bankers who get more, you know, um, involvement with the investment sales by nature. They're a little more collaborative by nature. They're willing to kind of do the thing, spec the time to do that sort of thing. Well, some mortgage bankers say, I just want to kind of focus on my client base and getting deeper with them. So it ends up being a little, I'd love to say it's an army of people marching lockstep and it's really easy. And you just put in this recipe and away it goes, you're dealing with people and it's, everyone's on kind of their own path of evolution of getting there. And it's just kind of getting that initial movement. And, and and the other thing that happens what I love about this business is both brokers and mortgage bankers, when they smell success, they follow the smell. <laughs> uh-huh. So you just got to get some success. And then it's like, Hey, that guy's succeeding at that. I'm going to try that. And that's really a lot of the, a lot of the momentum that you start to get out of it from a commission, highly commissioned sales sales group. Right. And so let a couple different thoughts. Now, uh, one is 50% of the people who came in with one of your acquisitions wound up not staying because they weren't good culture fits. So not everyone fits even when they're successful at this. Second question, and, and I asked Brett this, so I'll be curious of your, of your thoughts, but what are the attributes of those most successful brokers? And even though the mortgage banker person has a different rhythm than the investment salesperson, I think these attributes are common. So, but maybe not. So I, I want to ask you both of that, but go there. And then I have a, the follow-up question is going to be men and women in the business and women being successful in the business. The answer to what the attributes are does not presuppose male or female, but I'm curious. Okay, go for it. You know, that's been, and again, I'm not from the space. So I think I was able to kind of come in with a little bit more clear-eyed view of, mm-hmm. of it, or at least, you know, at some point in time, I have been amazed by the difference 
the different personalities. I mean, if you did, if you ran a personality test of Myers-Briggs against our Salesforce, you would not find a consistent answer. And, and here's a little bit, here's what I would say. Be, given the nature of mortgage banking, it's such a deep, you know, few, few clients, deep relationship. That's really more kind of who you gel with. And so some of our mortgage bankers are very analytical, very technical, very serious kind of, you know, in the weeds kind of, you know, if you said nerdy, you know, or whatever the mm-hmm. case would be a little bit like that. Some of them are very flamboyant, kind of flying at a high rate, taking clients out, doing a lot of kind of entertaining, but it just kind of ends up that they kind of gravitate towards people that want to have deep, longer relationships with those sorts. That's the people they want to hang out with on mm-hmm. the banking side. On the investment sales, it's a little, I'd say it's a little more homogenous, which is it really is a sales process. So you're getting more of the traditional sales person, you know, um, and, and so that kind of a personality extrovert, or at least a very highly functioning introvert, uh, it's a little less technical, a little bit less technical. Um, and you really have one client, which is kind of, you know, you have a client you're trying to pitch yourself to, to get the listing. And then you've got kind of this universe of clients that you're trying to, to run a process to get them to come in and take the time to notice the property and to, and to do the work that they need to do. On the banking side, you not only have your client, you have all the lenders. And so you have kind of this, you're balancing kind of the fiduciary responsibility to two different people. It's a very kind of different thing. So I would say less homogenous on the, on the mortgage banking side, more homogenous on the investment sales side. Uh-huh. And any thoughts of, so I bet they're all different on Myers-Briggs, but maybe they're not different in a different test in terms of drive, intelligence, Hey, drive in intelligence. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I think I did. Look, none of these, you know, it's kind of to be on the mortgage banking side. Again, it's a four or five year apprenticeship. That's mm-hmm. how the, that's how you learn as you start and you sit at the knee of someone who's a senior producer and you do all the, the grind and, you know, work your way up. And then they're also the senior producer is they're kind of seeing, are you a guy who can become a rainmaker? Are you someone who can help bring in business or that? And if you don't, you kind of wash out a little bit. And so it ends up being certainly from a drive and a, and a, I call it grit. Like <laughs> these people are gritty and they are, you know, they can take a no for an answer and they can keep on pushing. And they are curious to some degree of like, how can something come together? How can I structure this in a way that works, you know, and gets the client what they need and the lender what they need as well. So I would say, you know, a combination of some grit and a little bit of, and some some smartness in kind of the creativity way, <laughs> right? They may not be the most book smart people or, you know, all the marching out of the vaunted halls of an Ivy League school, but they are gritty and they are very creative and smart. Yeah. So let's also talk about women in the business and women, each of those roles, investment sales, mortgage banking, and then in corporate roles, because you have women in leadership as well. And so I want to think about there's been a deficit in the business forever. It's been an unfriendly place in the early days. My wife was a transactional person in the business for years, and there were places she just couldn't go. (laughs) It didn't make sense. And that that's changing, but it, and there's attributes of the female personality. Gosh, if I could say that, I don't know if that's even true. That may be more friendly to those long-term relationships and that consultative approach. So just riff on all that because it really matters. Yeah. So look again. I you know my I remember so well the very first industry event NMHC meeting I attended as the CEO of Bricadia. Right. And I remember I was at the top of an escalator and going down into a room, big ballroom <laughs> that had people in it. And every single person, almost without exception, looked like me. You know, everyone was wearing their blue blazer, you know, and blue was blazers. standing around with a drink in their hand. And I was just kind of blown away. But what was even more interesting to me, Matt, was when I went to the individual meetings with clients, it wasn't the case. Mm. Clients were much more diverse than our industry. And that was, this was 2015. I was, this was like, that was another light bulb that went off in my head, which was like, this doesn't, this, this doesn't work. Like you have to look like your clients and act like your clients. It has nothing to do with, you know, diversity as a, as a policy or as something, some social good or something like that. It has to do with like, if you want to be long-term in this business, you better change your ways a little bit and start thinking about things differently. And so we did, we did from a, from a very intentional and strategic way, we want, one of the things we wanted to do is it, as we were reshaping the culture of Bricadia mm-hmm. is we wanted to be a place where people from all backgrounds and all, you know, and that and genders and all the others that fits in there could come and bring their best selves. Because by the way, they're going to be matching up with some sort of clients. I talked about mortgage bankers, you know, that they tend to gravitate towards clients that are like them. 
well, we need mortgage makers that are going to gravitate towards clients like they are. Mm-hmm. And so we went on, it was a very practical kind of approach and, and I think been relatively successful. Now, to your point, it's a, it's hard because you got to start at kind of the, where the entry point is. And there aren't many, very many women who kind of know about it. Most people are coming into this industry because their uncle is in real estate and, you know, they want to get their, they want to get their nephew in. And so they call us and say, Hey, hire my guy. And maybe I'll give you some business or whatever the case is. That was kind of the traditional way. And mm-hmm. we've had to revamp how we attract people, how we recruit to do that. But I would say kind of the, the proof is in the pudding. I would say, you know, last year, our number one investment sales broker was a, was a woman. And the three people who lead our production on our institution, uh, overall mortgage banking and strategy, uh, Hillary Province, over our Bercadia Institutional Solutions is Marianne King, mm-hmm. who came to us through an acquisition of Moran and Company. And then uh, the person who's kind of driving that on the tactical side is Dory Nolan. We have three brilliant, and I, you know, it's funny, I had a, someone was going to put that in a LinkedIn from our company and say, hey, you know, during Women's Month, we need to point out that these are women. I don't like that. What it is, is we have three incredibly competent people running those areas. They just said they happen to be women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not because they were women. They're put into those places. They're put in there because they're, they're damn good at it. Absolutely true. Uh, it's interesting because I think Marianne, tra- I, who, I know all three of these people well, one of whom we placed with your company, so that's a good thing. But Marianne transcends the genre for many, many years of what an investment sales broker is. She's yes. been an advisor since she started in this. And it was not transactional. It was rela- It was transactional and relationship. And I will think this through with you. I will be your thought leader here. Yeah. And she part. started out as an investment banker. You know, she's got uh, degrees from fancy places. I mean, she's a very wickedly smart person mm-hmm. and she is, and that was her interest was like being able to solve problems. And that's, it's funny. She's way before her time. Mm-hmm. She was, uh, she was advisory before advisory was, was cool. And, uh, and she's really helping us kind of take that approach across the platform. Mm-hmm. So also, as you think about the long view, you think about niches within the business and you build out niches. So the question is, you're seeding people into success. You know, it takes five years for an apprenticeship for them to start to have market interactions. What's that look like generally in terms of building those teams? But then also, as you build those teams into niches, it might be a quicker, you could feel it more quickly. Any comments on that? And then what are the niches where you're seeing opportunity? Yeah, certainly we, we have a, we've done a, you know, it's interesting. We talk about investment sales and mortgage banking as kind of separate beings a little bit in the conventional multifamily space and other places. And that's, that's true. Although we're trying to blur those lines and really get those to come together as a team, but they're just such big, you know, we have 300, well, we have, uh, actually we have 400, you know, salespeople and, and, you know, and so it's hard just to manage 400 people. You kind of have to break them into little groups. But what we've done with some of those niche type things, Matt, is we've actually just made business units. So like all of our affordable business, which includes investment sales, includes mortgage banking. It also includes a tax credit equity syndicator. We actually, that's what managed by one person. So the, 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 the interface is very, very tightly managed and all kind of has one throat to choke. We've done the same thing on, uh, so we'd have done that on hotels and hospitality. We've done that on seniors housing. We And we just have a kind of, a, I would say, a brand new practice starting last year, which was uh, is medical office and life sciences. And in those cases, and I'll, I'll just use medical office and life sciences, we found what we thought was someone who was coming, someone coming off another platform, but someone we thought had real promise as a leader of one of those kind of, you know, subunits. So we brought her in and we asked her to kind of assemble her team. We seeded that effort and obviously have provided the support for that. And their team's kind of coming together. It was one person, you know, a year ago, and now it's, uh, you know, get approaching 10. Uh, and they're kind of off to the races as a national practice. And there's one person, again, in charge of both investment sales and mortgage banking. So there's kind of a very, you know, uh, collaborative approach to that. And that'll, that'll continue with those niche type areas because there's not so many people. It's not going to be 300 people. It's going to be, you know, something that's manageable by one person. And there's real value in having that, have one person in charge. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm curious about this to drive into it, but what kind of person wants to be in charge of that or is in charge of that? Was that someone growing from a transactional role to being a player coach or a leader? And then also, once you think of a business like that holistically with investment sales, mortgage banking, thought leadership, 
all of that does come together, which then you can drive that thing. And it's small enough to drive it versus maybe the mainstream of the business. But what, what personality does that? Is it all different? That is hard because we are a big, we're big believers at Brickade. We don't have big layers of middle management. We don't have guys running around with cool titles. We, we like to keep it relatively flat because I think there's real value in people like me only being a couple of layers away from clients. People who report directly to me being, you know, a couple of layers away from clients. And so we, we really do require and need player coaches in leadership. And so I will say this, the very best producers don't always make the very best leaders just by nature. And so it takes something, you know, and that's, that was part of the process that I did when interviewing everyone, but we now kind of have that um, systematized to some degree is that trying to identify people who are, they may not be the best producers or they may be, but they have kind of the, whatever it is. And, you know, we test and try to figure out what that is, you know, that makes it so that we have hope and they have hope of being a leader in our system and being someone who can create that. And then we just support the hell out of them. I mean, we just work really hard making sure that they are getting the training, the coaching, the outside resources. Uh, if they, if they, if we need to get them a, you know, an executive coach, whatever it is so that they can build their skills to lead, you know, an organization and be effective in their role, because it's just a different managing is just different than producing. It's just, you know, it's like a great basketball player isn't always necessarily a great bowler. You got to, you got to kind of train if that's what you're going to make it, make your shift to. Yeah. So let's go back to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, which was the ecosystem and landscape of the different giant services firms and the more niche services firms like yours. And just for a moment, kind of do a little bit of contrast. You sell against CBRE, you sell against Cushman and Wakefield, you sell against Walker and Dunlop. So they're all in your place. And when you're selling against them, it's both to a client, but it's also to the people who want to be part of your team for the next 10 years. Sure. So just kind of place that in a little bit of context and kind of differentiate you versus what those others, each of those others are. Yeah, and I, and I just say, look, everyone, you sell what you have. So, you know, if I was a public, if I was running a public company, God forbid, I'd sell the advantages because there certainly are some advantages to being a public company. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I get to sell what I think is the best advantages of being a privately held company, so on and so forth. So everyone kind of said, look, there, we have competitors who are banks and look, there's a we have a big balance sheet. I mean, everyone's kind of got their yep. kind of their strategy, given their structure and given their ownership. And I just so you asked the question, how do we kind of sell against that? There's a couple of different cuts of that. One is our focus on multifamily. I think is a real strength that we absolutely sell against some of the more diversified groups, uh, CBRE, you know, JLL, you know, so on. So with those guys, they have a lot of different things they're trying to do. They have a lot of different people they're trying to manage, a lot of different processes, a lot of different areas of the industry, a lot of different industries that they're trying to cover. You know, they kind of have to please them all or, 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 or whatever. We get to really just drill in and be multifamily focused. And that is attractive to clients who are like, look, this is what you guys do. So you're going to put 100% of your efforts, 100% of your investment dollars, 100% of your training, 100% of your money you're putting into technology that's going to be related to this space. They like that. And a lot of our internal people like that too. They're getting attention of management. I get a phone call to go on a pitch. I go on a pitch. The mm -hmm. CEO's sitting in on a pitch. It's not... I don't have anything, you know, what else can I be doing? I don't have to worry about, you know, tenant rep or, you know, office leasing or whatever that stuff is. So that's something that we, that we certainly sell against them. Look, from my perspective, being a public company in this, in our part of the industry is hard, you know, again, speaking just of our niche, but like it's a, it's by nature, a cyclical industry. Mm -hmm. It's by nature, a high kind of transactional fee industry. And when times are good, like they've been since 2012, it's a wonderful thing to do to be a public company. Your stock is rising. You're the darling, the, the, you know, the 24 year old analyst get on the phone and tell you, you know, you, you deserve knighthood or whatever it is, but things that go up, go down. And now all of a sudden you're in a mad scramble where, you know, how am I going to show that growth? How am I going to show that discipline? How, you know, the analysts are getting on and telling you how you ought to diversify, how you ought to run your life. You're preparing half your time to talk to these analysts and to defend your position and stuff like that. I've done it. Not interested in doing that anymore. But that really allows us in these downtimes to be aggressive and on the offense around gathering the right talent mm -hmm. and also we can still invest in having events. We can still invest in meeting with clients. We can still invest in all of those things when everyone else, you know, cuts their travel or does those sorts of things because they have to, because that's what public markets demand in a, in a, in a downturning cyclical industry. We sell that hard. And for 10 years, it wasn't that great of a sell because everything was going like this. 
it's becoming a pitch that people are a lot more interested in in the downturn. Yeah. So let's talk about your focus on multifamily and what that means in this current marketplace. A couple of comments and questions. One is obviously the headline is office, right? Well, so rates, <laughs> rates, low transaction volume across the industry. Office is brutal. We don't know what it's going to be. I'm thinking there's a contagion effect to that. And then even within multifamily, which has been the darling asset class for many years, there's a wall of maturity on short-term deals. So talk about all that, what that means, where you see it going. I'll just give you kind of how I, I think about things simply. Multifamily is just such a great place to be. Mm-hmm. So I'll just start out with there with like saying that relative to all the other asset classes, if you gave me a, you know my, my choice, this is where we would be. And part of that's because in an environment like this, you've still got at least Fannie, Freddie, and HUD. Mm, okay, that won't change. They're providing some liquidity into a market there, you know, which is enabling some transactions, which is giving some transparency on where pricing is. You know, not perfect. It's not a perfectly liquid, you know, all that kind of stuff, but it's it's there and it provides some level and supports some level of activity where some of these other places, like Office you mentioned, are just literally frozen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and especially kind of given the banking thing. I'll turn to kind of the, the the banking thing and specifically maybe kind of march down some of these. You'll remind me if I miss one. You know, the banking thing, look, for and from my perspective, and again, I'm no, I'm no genius for sure, but when money doesn't cost anything, it's amazing how many business models make sense. Mm-hmm. Money starts to cost something. Amazing how many kind of dumb ideas everyone goes, oh yeah, that was a dumb idea. And a lot of things in a downturn, when rates go up and money starts to cost more, they wash out, which is kind of, I think, a real benefit of our system, to be mm-hmm. quite honest. Bad ideas get executed. But I don't think there's a huge systemic problem with the banks. They're better capitalized than they've ever been, certainly during the great financial social, all that kind of stuff. But in some sometimes that actually doesn't really matter. Perception is reality. Mm-hmm. You know, what the facts are may not matter quite so much. And the perception right now, certainly from my perspective, is you know, the banks are going to be overseen with a lot more aggression, at least in the short term. Yep. Banks that are especially small banks and regional banks that historically have made up a lot of kind of the commercial real estate lenders mm-hmm. are going to be, their appetite is going to be curtailed significantly. Yep. And the big banks themselves, you know, just given what's going on, it's going to be. So I think that appetite by the banks is going to be much reduced. And this is, I don't think this is genius level thinking. This is true. This is common sense, right? Right. And you do have this wall of maturities coming up, a lot of which are coming up from the banks. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that's from construction or whether that's from, you know, floating rate, short, you know, bridgey type stuff, there is a lot of things that are coming up. And those, funnily, oddly enough, those are the ones that are also in trouble. Mm -hmm. If you bought something in 2021 or 2020, especially 2022, you probably bought that on, you know, floating rate. You probably put a one-year interest rate cap on there because that was what was affordable at the time because you were just squeezing to get a deal done, squeezing everything. And those are now in some degree of trouble, like fundamental trouble. Like they can't, they, you know, they, you also probably thought the uh, rate, the rents were going to continue to go up by 10 or 12% per year. So those have some trouble. The ones that, you know, loans that were made five years ago or loans that were made seven years ago or whatever the case is, those don't really have fundamental value problems because rents have gone up by X percent since then, which is a, which, and the X is a big number. Yep. So it's really is kind of this short term kind of a problem on the multifamily side of kind of this stuff that's coming up against a very illiquid market. But again, I kind of go back to thank heavens we have a Fannie, Freddie and a HUD who are kind of going to provide some level of liquidity there. And I do think that the government is going to figure out how to do something. They can't just tell every bank you got to foreclose on every bad loan you got and you got to take the lump because that would just blow up half of our banking system. I think they're going to find some way like they did during COVID, like they did during the great financial recession to you know extend a little bit, kick the can down the road a little bit, a little bit give some time for kind of things to settle out. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be something along there. And I think we're going to learn a lot during that time and get some structures in place that we in the multifamily industry, if there is a little bit of distress down the road, we'll be able to kind of lean on that and utilize those methods that have been put in place. The other thing that's interesting to me, Matt, is it, again, when I came into the business or even when I would say better, when we bought Capmark back in 2009, I don't know the numbers. I, I probably should figure it out, but like the percentage of apartment buildings that were owned by private capital, middle market kind of moms and pops and regional operations, stuff like that was very high. Mm -hmm. 
there were almost no institutions that were in the space. Now you look at it and it's, again, it's still got a very large fragmented kind of ownership, but now you got institutions like, you know, BlackRock or Blackstone, I should say, didn't have any apartment buildings until, you know, very within the last five or six years. And then all of a sudden they were the largest owner in the country. I mean, institutions kind of flew into that space. Institutions are interesting for me because private capital and middle market moms and pops have a much different risk reward profile. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, in situations like this, when kind of there's this, this uh, volatility and things are kind of a little bit shaky, there are still private capital who are willing to kind of jump in there and make a bet and do some things. Uh, The institutions are frozen because no one wants to be the, you know, the dummy who like is the first person and does the first stupid thing. But the downside is you do something dumb and you get fired. And that just changes kind of how, how people do things, I think. And that's purely my opinion. And I've been told I'm wrong, but I offer it again. <laughs> no, I think it makes total sense because the institutional share of the business has changed over time, which has changed the fundamental nature of the business. Concurrent with that, people like distress. They don't want to be the distressed. We don't want to right. be the distressed, but distress is where we're going to make money because that's where we've made money before. And everyone's confident that they're, we talked about the wall of maturity, but their wall of capital is just waiting. And everyone thinks their wall of capital is the capital that's going to buy first. So once it turns, it snaps, in my sense, given how much capital is waiting and is hungry and does believe that the future, when we're at a normalized new normal, then they're going to jump in and do a lot of business. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, people have talked about, I don't think we necessarily need to, you know, get back to 2%, you know, 10 year. I mean, we don't need to do that. My old boss uh, at Lucadia, he said, he had a saying, he said, companies can succeed with high taxes and they can succeed with low taxes. What they can't succeed with is unknown taxes. Yes. And I think that that's a perfect parallel to now we can, we can survive with relatively high. I mean, think about rates right now. If you take out maybe 2021, 2020, 2021, and 2022, the first half, they're at historically mm. low, historical lows. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy that we're whining about, you know, 10 years at three and a half. I mean, what the heck? That's never happened. But, you know, it's just the it, it's the it's the the volatility that that stops the, that chills the transactions. And, you know, if we can get the Fed to figure out exactly, we can get comfortable that they're kind of the terminal rate and they're kind of settling down, you know, even if there's not, you know, big cuts in the future predicted, if there's just some stability transactions, I believe will return. And, you know, some equity will probably feel a little bit of a pinch or a pain, or at least not get as much of a return as they thought they were going to, but everything will kind of reprice and away we'll go. There we will be. And I hope that will be soon. Me too, but I have no idea. <laughs> so we need to wrap up. Two, two questions. One, what have we missed talking about that's important for you now that you're thinking about all the stuff that we've covered in the last hour? What haven't we covered that, that would be important for you to say? I would just go back, Matt, to the idea that this is a, this is a wonderful industry. We're at a housing shortage. There's a mm-hmm. supply-demand problem. People are always going to be wanting kind of a, a new housing situation. They're going to be wanting to be moving up. Some are going to have to move down in housing. And so I just think over the long term, this is going to we're going to look back on this as a speed bump. I like to say we're truth tellers, not fortune tellers. So I have no idea when it's going to return, but it will return, and it'll be very, very, very strong. And I'm I, I couldn't be more excited. I was I was talking to. Um, my friend the other day, and he said, look, you've been at Bricadia for nine years. That's a long time for an old junkyard dog like you. And I said, I'm actually more excited about the next nine years than I am about what we accomplished in the last nine, because I really do believe we have an opportunity as an organization and as an industry, you know, that we're going to, this is going to return to very, very successful times. And it's fun because it's not going to be yesterday's business. It's going to be tomorrow's business, which is going to go to the to the people who can change and who can adapt and who can, uh, you know, kind of uh, figure it out and uh, get maybe go to where the puck's going instead of where the puck is. And, and I think um, we have the ownership that allows us to kind of, you know, do that in a way that I think is very, will pay long-term dividends. Yeah, it sure does. It's interesting. Everyone I've talked to on the podcast is mature in their careers. And as mature people in their careers, they've been through cycles. So being through cycles, you know it's a cycle and you're going to come out of it. And this may be short one, long one. We just went through a brutal one. Some <laughs> The GFC was the hardest one. I went through yeah. the SNL crisis that worked at the RTC. So I saw all this stuff. Oh, <laughs> but once you've been through a few, then you lead through it into the next place. Yeah. 
Yes. And you have long-term vision, which is a wonderful thing. Last question on leading voices is always, what's your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business? As I said, I have a very, I have a very varied career over my yeah. life. I've overseen companies in plastic wineries, auto dealerships, you know, subprime auto financing, oil and gas, banks, insurance. I'm so kind of the whole thing, iron ore mining. I mean, you know, kind of go through the thing. And so I, I kind of boil it all down. That I think there are really two things for a young person, and I don't care what business you're in. One is judgment, and the other one is willingness to lead. Hmm. I think that, you know, judgment, I, you know, the only way to get judgment is to make decisions and, and you make, and when you make decisions, you take risks of, you know, making bad decisions, but that's how you get to be wise is making bad decisions. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I just say over time, you know, for young people, put yourself in a place, go to a firm, go to wherever it is where you're going to have the opportunities to get to take some personal exposure on the decision-making process. Mm. So you can kind of develop your judgment. And then the second one is, I think the world, this world has a huge lack of leadership people who want and who are responsible enough to deserve leadership. And lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people have opinions. Mm -hmm. Very few people want to stick their neck out with 50% of the data or 70% of the data or even 10% of the data and say, no, we're going to actually make a decision based on a foundation of truth and of goodness and of, you know, all the, all that kind of stuff and of, of integrity. We need more of those. And so, you know, the willingness to kind of make those decisions, take responsibility and accountability for the, the, for the results and improve from there. Those are the, so those would be the two things, get judgment and be willing to lead uh -huh. and this world will be a better place. And whether they're in real estate or whether they're in plastics or whether they're in oil and gas, uh -huh. they're going to be successful because they'll be one of the few. And it's really interesting. So those great wisdom. And let me push to a point because when you're 24, you're getting into an industry, those, the way I look at it is those are goals and you want to develop those two things with the goal of when you get to be 40, you're going to lead and you might want to lead and you're going to have judgment then because you're going to have had experiences. So you want to live your life from 24 to 40, prepping in every way you can with that goal in mind. A hundred percent, Matt. And the other thing I would just say is that like, I can remember the day I was 28 years old when like the opportunity presented itself. I wasn't quite ready for it. Honestly, they, I kind of got put in a position that was over my head, but you, you don't know when the opportunity is going to show itself. So you got to be kind of ready as soon as you possibly can and have your eye out for those opportunities. Cause they, they may not wait for you to be perfectly ready, but if you miss them, Boy, I mean, it can it, it can be the difference between maybe like a four year jump in your career trajectory right. or, you know, slogging for another four years to get that opportunity again, if you ever get it. So you kind of you need to be pretty serious about just like you said, being in that process, working at it and then keeping your eye up a little eye out a little bit for those opportunities when they come. Totally true. Hey, Justin, thank you very much. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leadingvoices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.